Hello, my name is Lynette Wheat, and this is The Minds of Monsters, a true crime podcast discussing old crimes, new crimes, but always true crimes. Alright, so today I will be discussing the case of Cindy James. And before I begin, just fair warning, it is a very disturbing one. There will be strong language as well as graphic descriptions, so just make sure to keep that in mind before continuing to listen. Cynthia Elizabeth Hack, later known as Cindy James, was born on June 12, 1944, in Oliver, British Columbia, Canada, to Matildo, Matilda and Otto Hack. Cindy was the oldest of six. In her diary, Cindy often wrote about how strict her father was. He often used corporal punishment on the children, so... That was a big thing to her, and the police found that later when they read through her diaries, which I will get to later. At age 18, Cindy enrolled in nursing school. During her time in nursing school, her father re-enlisted into the Air Force and moved the family to France, where Cindy would visit them on the holidays. In 1965, Cindy met a man named Roy Makepeace a South African psychiatrist 18 years older than her. The two got married in December of 1966, the same year she graduated. Her parents were skeptical of the marriage, especially her father, who said he thinks Makepeace took advantage of her being naive and gullible. Her family also said the marriage was troubled and that they were emotionally distant at times. Cindy would later make accusations of spousal abuse from Makepeace. His rebuttals of these accusations was that he only slapped her twice, which were his exact words. And in my opinion, that is twice too many. Shouldn't be slapped. That's just, it just shouldn't happen. Roy Makepeace was a licensed psychiatrist in his home country of South Africa, but failed twice to obtain his license in Canada. He instead accepted a job as an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. Cindy worked as a pediatric nurse at Vancouver General Hospital from 1966 to 1975. In April of 1975, Cindy was hired as a team coordinator at Vancouver's Blenheim House. The Blenheim House is a facility that cares for children with behavioral disorders. Between the years of 1982 and 1989, Cindy reported around 90 incidences to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP. These claims included stalking, vandalism, harassment, intimidation, arson, home invasions, and physical assaults by an unknown person or multiple persons. Just letting you know, Again, I'm going to give the warning. These incidences include strong language throughout the harassment. There are graphic descriptions of physical assaults as well as animal cruelty and abuse. So just warning you now, if you don't want to listen to this one, by all means, please skip. But 
Just letting you know, if you do listen, that is what you'll be hearing. Starting October 7th, a series of obscene phone calls started to come in. These incidences started in 1982, which was four months after Cindy separated from Makepeace. In late September, she told a friend and family that she suspected someone lurking around her home. But it didn't, the obscene phone calls didn't start until October 7th. Cindy didn't go into detail when discussing the phone calls, but her mother said she told them it seemed to be one person speaking in different voices, and on some occasions it was just silence. She also described some of the phone calls to be violent and sexual in nature. On October 11th, Cindy received a call of just loud breathing noises. The following day, she received a call and the person whispered, I'll get you one night, Cindy. She reported these incidences to the police who came to her house and suggested she make a list of these calls and its contents as well as getting an unlisted number. Not long after the officer left, she received a call, which an apparent male voice said, you fucking bitch, I'll get you. The next day in the afternoon, the caller said, so you think calling the police will keep you safe? You wait, I've got my zipper open, I'm talking to my throbbing. That's when she abruptly ended the call. Which just saying that makes me want to cringe and throw up and oh my gosh creepy as heck um and unfortunately this doesn't even touch how bad it gets two days later cindy reported to the police that she'd heard someone lurking outside her home and that she woke up to find her porch light smashed on october 15th she reported to police that someone threw a rock through one of her windows and entered her house but nothing else was disturbed. On October 19th, she reported someone entered her home and slashed one of the pillows on her bed. A constable by the name of Patrick McBride suspected Cindy's estranged husband, Roy Makepeace, was the culprit. He denied involvement. Cindy didn't think it was him either and voiced this despite having told her co-workers how violently abusive he was during their marriage. On October 20th, two tenants who rented the basement of Cindy's home reported they heard strange noises coming from the home after Cindy left for work. A next-door neighbor reported they saw a man standing outside Cindy's house on at least three separate occasions even seeing this man enter the front gate. This neighbor insisted the man did not look like Makepeace. Cindy and Constable McBride began a relationship. They were very off and on, but he moved into Cindy's house on Halloween of 1982. She told friends McBride offered to stay with her to surveil the house in case someone tried to break in again and to make her feel more safe. Several days after McBride moved in, he saw Makepeace sitting in his parked car in an alley behind the house. 
When McBride questioned him, Makepeace said he was keeping an eye on the house to see if he could catch the perpetrator in the act. Makepeace did leave after being told McBride was living there. In mid-November, McBride said he received a strange call while Cindy was there, but the caller didn't say anything. Later in the month, Cindy found a note pinned to her windshield, which was a picture of a corpse under a medical sheet. On November 28th, McBride noticed Cindy's phone lines had been cut in five different places. Cindy and Roy remained cordial and friendly despite their divorce. She even invited him over from time to time when McBride was there and the two men discussed how to catch her harasser. McBride moved out of Cindy's house on December 1st, but they did continue to date for a while, still off and on. The week of Christmas of 1982, Cindy found a note outside her house reading Merry Christmas with a photo of a woman with her throat slashed. On January 27, 1983, Agnes Woodcock, a friend and co-worker of Cindy's, visited her home. When there wasn't an answer at the door, Agnes went to the backyard through the gate, which you can enter from the front yard, and found Cindy lying unconscious with a nylon stocking wrapped around her neck. When Cindy regained consciousness, she told Agnes that she was attacked from behind while on her way to the exterior garage. Also that the first man brought her to, into the garage where the other man was waiting and the two strangled her. At police request, Cindy went to see a general practitioner with counseling experience instead of seeing a psychiatrist in fear it would stigmatize her, which was a big fear in those days. Later in the month, Cindy found, actually, I got myself mixed up. On February 1st, 1983, Cindy moved to a new place. Less than a week after the move, she received a letter that said, run, rabbit, run. I'll show you how fucking good I am. Soon, bang, bang, you're dead. After more and more calls came in, Cindy moved again in April of 1983. Throughout the summer, Makepeace tried time and time again to reconcile with Cindy. He showered her with gifts and even paid her airfare to Indonesia to visit her brother. When she got back from that trip, she found a note which read, Welcome back. Death, blood, hate, etc. In an attempt to conceal her identity, Cindy painted her car. She also hired a PI to investigate who was harassing her. The PI, named Ozzy Caban, noted how Cindy went to extensive lengths to protect herself. She wore a panic button given to her by Caban. She also kept oil and pepper spray on her at all times. Between October and November, Cindy found the remains of three strangled cats in her garden, each bound with rope. She accused Makepeace of destroying her garden in her diary. So by then, I assume she was starting to suspect him as well. Which, also, I totally am, because I'm pretty sure he was the only one that knew about her trip and when she was going, so she would have a note when she got back 
that said welcome back. Yeah, I totally think it's the husband, but feel free to make your own opinions because who knows, it could be someone entirely different. But from everything that I read and all the research that I did on this case, it definitely seems like it's Roy Makepeace that did it. But anyway, the calls certainly didn't stop coming to both her home and work. Some of her co-workers answered the calls, but the caller wouldn't speak. On January 30th, 1984, Caban overheard strange noises on a two-way radio he'd given Cindy. He visited her home and found her lying unconscious in her living room with a paring knife stabbed through her hand and a note pinned to her hand. The note made from magazine clippings read, Now you must die, cunt. She was taken to a local hospital and interviewed there by Caban. She said the last thing she remembered was seeing a man come through her gate before being bludgeoned by a blunt object. She also said she remembered having a hypodermic needle inserted into her arm. The doctor was able to find the puncture mark, but there were no drugs in her system. Cindy also took a polygraph after and passed. Constable Kiyo Ikioma, which I'm probably totally mispronouncing, however, if you can see the way the name is spelt, I think most of us would probably mispronounce that, but I don't know that, but I totally did mispronounce that, I have no doubt. But Constable Kiyo Ikioma, who was sent to Cindy's home, saw blood smeared in circular patterns as if somebody was cleaning up evidence. In February of 1984, they began applying more pressure and questioning Make Peace more. Cindy was sure he was the one tormenting her, which she confided to the police. Makepeace continued to deny and even suggested that it could be mafia since she often worked with children who were wards of the, of the court. He even urged Cindy's father, Otto, to press the police to follow that lead after Makepeace was told to stay away from her. In the summer of 1984 is when the harassment reached an all-time high in intensity. On June 18th, she called Caban in a panic. He rushed to her home and found her in the garden, cowering in fear, saying someone got in her home. Caban searched the house and found Cindy's dog, Heidi, in the basement, terrified. He found a note near the dog that said, Happy Birthday, along with the sexually explicit photos. Along with sexually explicit photos. Heidi had been physically abused with a rope around her body, which was the same rope used on the cats found in Cindy's garden previously. Over the following several weeks, Cindy received more calls, one of which was answered by Caban while at her house. Cindy also found a dead cat on the stairs in her home. On July 1st, Cindy told Caban two men posed as officers, showed up to her home, but fled when she radioed him. She also reported more calls, one of which said, You're dead, bitch. It's gonna feel good. 
A coworker even received a call, which said, get rid of the big pig. On July 9th, 1984, Cindy's mother spent the night in the middle, and in the middle of the night, she woke up to Heidi barking. She found Cindy checking windows and doors. Not long after, the doorbell rang, and they found a window near the front porch had been cracked in several places. On July 23rd, Cindy said she was attacked around 8.30 p.m. near Dunbar Park while she was walking Heidi. She said her attacker, so her attacker was a bearded man driving a green van. There was also a female passenger. Around midnight, she was found dazed trying to enter a neighbor's home with a nylon stocking around her neck, and her dog was found by Caban wandering the park. Cindy was taken to the University of British Columbia Health and Sciences Center, where two puncture wounds were found. While Cindy was being treated at the hospital, the receptionist told police a man with an accent had called to find out what the security measures were. When police played the audio of Makepeace's voice, the receptionist said there was a strong possibility it was him. In June of 1985, Cindy was involuntarily committed to the psychiatric unit at Vancouver's Lion Gate Hospital after an attempt on her own life. On July 2nd, she agreed to a wiretap phone call with Makepeace, in which she accused him of these incidents, which he continued to deny. Not long after Cindy was released from the hospital, she received a package, which had nylon stocking and a note that read, Blood Flowing Freely. On July 27th, she found a cosmetic container on her front porch with putrefied raw meat of a small animal inside. Ugh, gross. On August 5th and 6th, Cindy reported two fires, one each day from burnt newspaper. On August 21st, a third fire broke out at 4.45 a.m. Cindy had been walking her dog since 3.15 a.m., and came back to the fire. Due to no evidence of anyone else being there, the authorities believed Cindy said it herself. In the fall of 1985, Cindy was interviewed by a psychologist requested by police. The police believed Cindy was lying and orchestrating her own attacks. The one who actually requested she see a psychologist was a woman named Carol Halliday saying she believed men on the force were conned by the histronics of a pretty woman, which was a direct quote. The psychologist's opinion was that Cindy may have been suffering from disassociative identity disorder. He also said his, this direct quote, this woman was under siege from whatever source inside or out. She was in a living nightmare which is possibly the biggest understatement for what she was dealing with. On December 1st, Cindy moved again. Ten days after her move, around 6 p.m., she was found in a ditch by motorists. She was semi-conscious in the ditch, and the ditch she was found in was 
3.7 miles from her home, and she was unable to remember how she got there. When the motorists found her, she was wearing men's work boots and a single glove. Again, a nylon stocking was wrapped tightly around her neck. Due to it being winter, it was absolutely freezing outside, and she was suffering from hypothermia and rushed to the hospital. She had also been injected with tranquilizer and had various cuts and bruises all over her body. For Christmas, she went to Germany to visit her brother, upset the police wouldn't believe her that these were not attacks of her own making, which I don't know how possibly the police could think that, but um, once we get further into this, you'll see why I say that, but it's absolutely nuts. In early 1986, Cindy changed her last name from Makepeace to James, hoping to further conceal her identity. Agnes and her husband began staying at Cindy's home to help her feel at least a bit better and a little bit more comfortable in her own home. On April 16th, one of the nights they were staying with her, they were woken up by Cindy saying she heard something. After looking around a bit, they found another fire in the basement. When they attempted to call the fire department, they realized the phone lines were cut, so Agnes's husband, Tom, ran to the neighbors to call. Tom saw a man standing on the street, and spoke. And when Tom spoke to him, he fled. Cindy stayed with the Woodcocks for several days after the fire. They said she wouldn't eat and wouldn't say and would say that her life is not worth living anymore. The psychiatrist she'd been seeing since January 1983 met with her. He always believed her, but was worried she wanted to take her own life. He had her committed for two weeks, which after many assessments, it became ten weeks. One examination he did said the following. This 41-year-old woman, on initial assessment, was very res resistant. She would also only answer in one-word responses. She refused to discuss a number of topics and would give no eye contact. On the second date, her mood was considerably elevated. She had completed the other tests herself and was willing to talk. She seemed appreh apprehensive as to how the tests could be used. She maintained good eye contact except when discussing the terrorizing incidents. She then would look down or cover her eyes and speak haltingly. She expressed upset and cried a great deal when relating these incidences. Patient kept asking if her responses to items indicated she was crazy. Her IQ is well above average. This type of individual can be characterized as negativistic and conforming. They have unpredictable moods, pessimism, sullenness, vacillating with social agreement and friendliness. They tend to anticipate and precipitate disappointments through their obstructive and negative behavior. This type of person tends to be vulnerable to fears. Well, yeah, no kidding. She tends to be vulnerable to fears. She's living in terror. After the 10 weeks she was released, 
but she had told her father she knew who was doing this to her, but refused to name him. In August of 1987, Cindy began working as a nurse at Richmond General Hospital. On August 28th, her home alarm was triggered after a back window was broken. On August 31st, she reported to police that the porch lights were loosened. A week later, she reported to police someone used a glass cutter to cut a hole around the basement window. Sorry if you hear noise in the background. That's my gerbils. Um, in February 1988, Cindy reported someone had shattered another window. On October 11th, 1988, Makepeace received two strange messages. One said, Cindy, dead meat soon. And the other said, more smack, more downers, another grand after we waste the cunt. No more deal. He gave the answering machine tapes to his attorney since he didn't trust the police. Just over two weeks after Makepeace received these messages, Cindy was found in her garage unconscious. She was hogtied, nude from the waist down, with a nylon stocking around her neck. In January of 1989, Cindy rented the basement unit to a man she purchased a life insurance policy from. She had said she'd feel safer with someone else living there. On April 8th, a security guard at Richmond General Hospital discovered a note in the building which read, Soon, Cindy, in all capital letters, as well as Sleep Well, traced in the dew on her car windshield. After an attempted break-in on April 29th, scent hounds were dispatched but found nothing. However, after another attempted break-in on May 10th, the dogs were able to pick up on a scent of an unknown man. Um, and the scent led over Cindy's backyard fence. Or, not an unknown man, unknown person, pardon. Cindy began to express frustration due to the police suspecting she was the one staging all of this. All except one detective... In a complaint against the department, she said the following about Detective Jerry Anderson. For his patience, unfailing professionalism, and professional conduct, and his exemplary investigation of this case, he is the only member of the RCMP I feel I can trust and be comfortable with. Which is truly devastating that there was only one that truly believed her. May 25th, 1989, would be the last time anyone would see Cindy alive. After going about her day, getting her paycheck, getting groceries, and depositing her paycheck, she wasn't seen again. Cindy had planned to have Tom and Agnes over to play bridge and spent the night, but they hadn't heard from her. They drove over to her house at 10 p.m., her house was locked and her car was missing. After they located her car at Blundell Shopping Center, they drove to the police station to report Cindy missing. Due to her history with the police, they sent a 
patrol car to investigate a lot sooner than they usually would. Which, finally. Upon closer examination of Cindy's vehicle, they found blood inside the driver's side door, as well as groceries and a wrapped birthday gift, and the contents of her wallet were found under the car. Several days after Cindy was reported missing, the insurance agent Cindy's tenant reported to the police that a man claiming to be her father was inquiring about her life insurance policy. When the police questioned her father, he denied making that call. On June 8, 1989, a man named Gordon Starchuk, a paving worker, discovered Cindy's body in the backyard of an abandoned house. Her body was hogtied with rope in the fetal position and a nylon stocking was bound tightly around her neck. On the house's exterior, exterior fuel tank, the words, Some bitch died here, were written in orange spray paint and a line from the tank to Cindy's body was made with that same spray paint. A pathologist at the scene noted that her hands were bound so tightly one finger had scratched another down to the bone. She also noted a pinprick consistent with a hypodermic needle was found on her right inner elbow. A forensic entomologist, forensic entomologist concluded she had been dead as early as June 2, 1989. Cindy's autopsy determined she died from multiple drug intoxication, from 10 times the lethal dose of morphine, about 600 milligrams of fluorazepam, and numerous tablets of diazepam. For about 40 days, the police, as well as witnesses in Cindy's inquest to determine her cause of death, were in court. The police still believe she did all of this to herself, but witnesses disagreed. The jury was unable to determine if it was a homicide or suicide or an accident. So after deliberations, they ruled her death being caused by an unknown event and her case was formally closed. Which blows my freaking mind. Like, okay, with how I heard that she was hogtied and all of that, there is no way she could have done that to herself after taking all of those drugs. Like, sure, it'll maybe take a minute to get through her system, but there is no way she could have hogtied herself that quickly. No way. And the fact that they believed that she was the one to do all of this to herself is absolutely nuts, in my opinion. I'm like, truly... She was the one sending all these calls to herself to make peace, to her work, to all these other places. She was the one causing herself physical harm. She was the one leaving notes. She, sure, she was depressed and in a living hell, literally, but what? And they didn't believe her and her case is her case is closed, and it was ruled that her death was caused by an unknown event. Mind blown. I cannot believe. And it still hasn't been solved. And it won't be solved because it's closed. Which blows my mind. It's absolutely ridiculous. 
Ay, ay, ay. Oh. Cases like this just break my heart for not only her family, her five other siblings, her just everybody that doesn't have answers and they're just expected to move on with their life. It's like the case is closed, it's done, it's case closed, shut, done. No more opening it. It's it's done. Like, that's nuts. That's crazy. Sorry for my rant, but that's... When I was researching this case, I was just mind blown. I had heard about this case on a different podcast, which... Um, it's Murder, Mystery, and Makeup by Bailey Sarian. She's really good. I've been listening to her a lot recently. But that's where I first heard about this case. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do some research on this and see if I can go into more depth on what she did. Because she usually does shorter episodes. But um, it's a fairly short case because there's not a whole ton of details. And all the details were probably, um, you know, some were probably missing. They didn't probably release all the information, all the calls. She didn't probably write them all down. You know, that's just my thought. And I was like, you know, I got to research this case because it's absolutely nuts. It's crazy that they thought it was her the whole time. And she was treated like she was crazy. I just, I can't imagine. She was in a living hell and she was being treated like she was crazy. Oh my gosh. Again, sorry for my rant. Um, but that is the end of this case. Unfortunately, I wish it had a better ending. It really, really made me sad to find out that this is just how it ended and there was nothing more to be done. Um, but thank you for listening. And if you wouldn't mind, you know, reviewing the podcast, answering the Q&A, following the podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. And um, my Instagram is the Minds of Monsters. If you're not already following there, I'd greatly appreciate that. If you have any case recommendations, my email is themindsofmonsters at gmail.com, so please send any recommendations you have. I would greatly appreciate them. Um, there's so many cases out there that I want to get to, and I'm just like so, um, my brain is just so clouded, and I can't seem to, foggy, that's the word I was looking for. It's so foggy, and I want to get to all these different cases, but I haven't had the chance. And, you know, things have been a little crazy, so I'm going to try to get back on a regular schedule as well. But if you would please rate, review, and, you know, put any case recommendations that you have that you'd like me to cover, I would greatly appreciate that. And until next time, stay safe, and have a good day, have a good week. And I do have another episode coming out tonight as well. I did two this week because I know I've been missing quite a few. So I have another one coming out shortly. Have a good rest of your week. Stay safe. Please, please stay safe. And if, like in this case, you are being harassed or anything like that, push the police. Like, do everything you can to get the help you need because there are too many cases like this out there where 
just things just get butchered things just get botched it's just so bad so anyway thank you for listening bye